Amen. Thankful if we should be for the grace of God. It is uh, without it, we would all be on our way to hell. Are okay uh, because we would be listening to the lie of the devil in this world that it's just me about about being good or let my good works outweigh my bad and that kind of thing. But the truth is, <clears throat> is that apart from the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, there's no way that we would ever. Uh, be able to reunite with our and our spirit with the Lord Jesus and our Father in heaven. And so praise the Lord for that. As we've been looking uh, now and looking forward to Easter Sunday, we've uh, taken a little bit of time and looked at kind of the events leading up to uh, on this coming Wednesday night, we'll look at the crucifixion and we'll uh, take some time to remember the Lord's sacrifice and the Lord's table. Uh, and so... Uh, this morning, I want to just just prior to that, Jesus has left in our text this morning. They've left the upper room. He has been walking. There are several things that take place. And uh, when you read some of the other accounts and some of the other gospels, there's they leave the upper room and they're in the Garden of Gethsemane. When you read the Gospel of John, uh, if you pay attention to the the length of it, sometimes our minds just kind of work with big changes at chapter divisions. Uh, the, the bulk of uh, the Gospel of John just deals with the last week of the Lord's life. And so uh, we have a long conversation all the way back in chapter 14. They leave chapter 15. There is the passage on abiding in Christ. All that is taking place as they're walking from the upper chamber to the garden where Jesus will be taken into custody. Uh, and now they are in the garden. The entire 17th chapter of John, and we looked last week at the Lord's Prayer, uh, not the model prayer that we think of when we hear that term, but the prayer that Jesus prayed uh, as he's there in uh, preparing to be taken into custody and then to give his life on the cross for us. The entire 17th chapter is that prayer. And I'm not going to re-preach that message. I just want to kind of get us kind of in the same frame of mind as we progress through the evening here. Uh, because it's happening in the same night. Uh, he prays in verses 1 through 5 of chapter 17 for himself. He prays that God will enable him to bring glory to him, that he will be glorified. In essence, that uh, he's praying, Father, help me now to bring this to conclusion. Uh, I've, I've left heaven. I've put on human flesh. I've walked amongst men. I have healed. I have touched. I have preached. I have done all of the things that you've given me to do, and now I'm down to these final moments. Lord, help me uh, to glorify you that you might glorify me. In essence, what he's saying here is, let's let, help me finish this. Um, it, Jesus understands, like no one else understands, the anguish that he is about to face, the price that he is about to pay. And it's not that in his humanity that he doesn't look and 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 see what's coming uh, and just as excited about it. I mean, he did pray, uh, Father, if there's any other way, take this cup from me. But ultimately, he says, thy will be done. And you know, it's not in our humanity wrong for us sometimes to look at difficulties that we are facing us in life and say, Lord, if there's another way for me to accomplish the will for my life that you have ordained, uh, would you help me find it? Uh, but nevertheless, our prayer should be, Lord, thy will be done, understanding uh, that God knows best what he needs to accomplish with our lives in light of eternity. So 
he prays for himself in the first five verses. In the next verses, verses 6 through about 19, he prays for his disciples. He prays for those men that have been with him, uh, men that he has been investing in, men that he has loved, men that he has encouraged, men that he has at times has rebuked, uh, men who he certainly has thoroughly at times confused, uh, and yet he's right there with them, and they are with him, and they are, uh, and he knows what they're about to go through. It's interesting to me that knowing that he is about, that he knows he's about to be wrongfully arrested and tried, he is going to be convicted falsely, he is going to be beaten, he is going to be spat upon, ridiculed, he is going to have a crown of thorns jammed into his skull, and don't think for a moment that it was placed there gently. Uh, it, they, nothing about what they did and how he was treated was gentle. Uh, and so uh, he would be whipped. He would ultimately have to struggle under the weight of bearing that cross up the mountain. Uh, he would have to have help to get it there. Uh, then he would be placed upon it. He would willingly uh, submit to the sentence because it wasn't a sentence of his guilt. It was a sentence of our guilt. Uh, and he was there for that purpose. He would allow them uh, though all he had to do was speak a word and, and relief would have instantly came, uh, but we would have been forever condemned uh, as they drove the spikes through his feet and his, his hands uh, and then hoisted the cross and dropped it violently into the hole so that many doctors that have examined it would believe that most of the joints, if not all in his body, would have become dislocated. Uh, understanding the death on the cross is a death of suffocation. It is a death in which you cannot, in a downward position, draw a breath. You have to push up with your feet, with every push of his feet, pushing against the pressure of those spikes that are piercing them. And he had to pull every pull, pulling against the hands, the wrists, the spikes through the nerves, the tendons, uh, as he pulled the gasp and draw uh, for breath until it was finished. But he did it. And knowing that that's coming, he prays for his disciples. His concern is that, listen, Father, they're going to have to witness this. They're, they're not going to fully understand yet, though I have told them many times. You know, it kind of makes me feel better sometimes because there are things that I, I hear preached or I read in the Bible, uh, and I think, you know, I, I'm, I, I'm just not getting it. And then later on, it's like a light comes on, and all of a sudden I understand and in essence, what Jesus is saying to me to me here is that, you know, that's okay. My disciples will turn the world upside down and they have the same problem. And they got it directly from me. You're reading about it in my word. They heard it. They were able to interact with me, ask questions and, and see my expression and do those types of things. He prays for his disciples. He knows the anguish that they're going to face. They're going to be driven apart. They're going to flee. Then some of them are going to watch up close his suffering. Others are going to watch from a distance. Certainly, uh, even if they were trying to cautiously keep their distance, it's hard to imagine that they would not have, at least from a distance, seen him on the cross outside of the gates up on Golgotha. And he knows it's coming, and he prays for his disciples. Then, interestingly enough, in verse number 20, he changes focus again and down through the end of the chapter in verse uh, number 26, where he prays for believers. He prays for us. He prays for those that believe on him now, then, at that point in time, those that would believe in him in the uh, in the coming days ahead, those that believe on him now. Uh, and the Bible tells us that Jesus is at the right hand of the Father making intercession for us. He's praying for us still. 
what a wonderful thought to know that in the anguish of my life, in the despair of my life, in the confusion sometimes of life, that the Lord Jesus Christ is praying for me at the right hand of God. Jesus knows what's coming. Now, the Lord ultimately <coughs> is preparing himself for the cross. We see him uh, making preparations at the Mount of Transfiguration. We see him making uh, preparations as he goes through the uh, the the final Passover meal with the disciples, and he washes their feet and he cleanses them. And we'll look at that here in a moment. But uh, but the Lord is preparing Himself for the cross. He is getting Himself ready. And if Jesus needed to prepare Himself for and allow God in prayer to prepare Him for the the what He would face, how much more do we need? to prepare for the things that God ordains in our life. And preparation time is not something that happens when you're in the midst of conflict. Preparation time comes in the quiet times. And the Lord is preparing for the cross. And he, uh, he says ultimately, if I'm, uh, or gives the principle that if I'm walking with God, uh, God will prepare me for the cup that I must drink. And as a Christian, I have to understand that if I, uh, if I would accept the hard things in life that God has ordained for me, realizing that it's part of God's plan to show His grace in my life that those that do not know Christ would see God doing a, a miraculous work in me, even in the midst of suffering, uh, that is a light that shines in darkness. Listen, when someone sees you go through a deep trial, uh, suffer a great tragedy, deal with a, a, a horrible disease, and you do so with grace and with joy as you fellowship and worship with your God, that speaks to people something that they cannot understand. Jesus often spoke things to them that they could not understand. If I walk with God, He will prepare me. You know, I think as I as I thought of ways to to illustrate this, I don't I don't know that there's a better illustration than troops going to combat. In that environment, their commanders and their platoon sergeants and their company first sergeants and their whatever level of of, of unit they're working at there, uh, they are that that's the battlefield is no time for preparation and training. There can be orders issued and commands to be followed and there can be tweaks made and suggestions made, but, but that's not training time. That's life and death. And I think that oftentimes what we do as Christians is that we just kind of drift along and, and live easily in our Christian life. And then when we are faced with a battle, we succumb and are defeated, not because we did not have access to, uh, to to what was necessary to stand, but because we waited until we were in the heat of battle until we tried to figure it out and we ended up a casualty of the spiritual war that we fight. The troops are trained in the quiet times. They're trained in the fields, yes, but in garrison. We're taught in the classroom and then go out and put it into practice in the field. Corrections can be made, it, skills can be honed, and practice can be done, and uh, all kinds of things can take place. And, uh, and even those things in practice are dangerous. Men uh, get deeply injured or even killed, oftentimes just rehearsing for the danger that they face. But the battle is no time for preparation. Time for preparation is now. And Jesus is in the garden here with his men, and he is preparing for the cup that he is about to face. He says to them, 
that the cup which my Father has given, shall I not drink it? The cup which God had chosen for Jesus was incomprehensible to his disciples, and it should be incomprehensible to us. Though we have a better vantage point, which makes it historically, and time, which makes it a little easier for us to grasp and to connect all the dots and to put things together, it was it is still incomprehensible to understand that God put on human flesh so that he could suffer and become our sin and then defeat death and hell so that he could be our savior and so that we could live eternally with him in fellowship. That's incomprehensible. But to the disciples even more, because the cup that was chosen for Jesus from God and from the beginning was a bitter cup. You know, sometimes the cup that we face in life can be a bitter cup. And sometimes there are things that life sends our way that are just hard, that are unfair. Things that we can't reconcile. Things that we at times can't understand. Sometimes if we are not walking with the Lord, the experiences of life will cause us to become bitter. And bitterness is not a good place to live. Because ultimately, the bitter person is the one who pays the highest price. But his cup was a bitter cup. He was wrongfully accused. You stop and you think about what is it the things that make us bitter? Generally, it is our perception that someone is treating us unfairly or doing us wrong. Now, they may or may not be. That really is, is irrelevant. If my place and my spirit is not right and in fellowship with God, if I perceive that, then it's going to cause bitterness. And so the cup that Jesus faced was a bitter cup, but it was also a poisonous cup. The poison of false words. Few things are as damaging and poisonous as, as lies. Things that are spread, things that are undertones, things that go from one person to another, from one family to another. The cup that Jesus faced that night was poison. As he stood there before, uh, before Caiaphas, before he even went to the Roman authorities, he was falsely accused. They lied about him and what he did and what he was, uh, what he was about and accomplishing. He also had to face that night the cup of death. But you stop and you think about the miracle of what God did and what God was doing. He had to face a bitter cup. Yes, it was God's cup. God ordained this for him. It was chosen by God for him. It's hard to understand. But that cup was bitter and that cup had poison and that cup ended up in death. But that cup was the cup that brought life eternal. Ultimately, what I don't understand is that what God ordains in my life that may be difficult can produce things that will bring blessings for someone in eternity. They can make an impact in my life beyond my life. A Christian must yield to God's wisdom and his purpose and accept willingly the cup that God chooses for us. Now, I am not here this morning saying that if you love the Lord and you live for the Lord, that everything that happens from that point, that point forward is going to be a hardship. Ultimately, and by and large for most people, God desires for us to enjoy the fruit of our labors. God wants us to enjoy the beauty of His creation. God wants us to enjoy the beauty of the, of the fellowship, of the relationships that we cultivate with His people and our families. Uh, and that's what most of us will experience. But there are going to be seasons in all of our lives where there's going to be some difficulty. 
At some point, we're all going to get sick. At some point, we're all going to, uh, our bodies will begin to fail and break down. At some point, someone is going to falsely accuse and attack. At some point, all of these things are going to come to pass. It doesn't mean that they always dominate the landscape of your life, but, but they're going to come. How do you know, Pastor? Because we live on the planet Earth with a bunch of people that are just like us. And it's just what we do. It's our nature. It just comes out. And so I don't want to sit back and just feel victimized all of my life and, and, and whine and complain about how hard it is or how difficult it is or uh, how overwhelming life has gotten. I, I want to look out and say, you know, Lord, what I want is to fellowship and to walk with you. And if I walk in fellowship with you and you go through this valley that you've chosen for me, with me, then even in the midst of my trial and my adversity, I can have my fellowship in you and I can have joy and pleasure in you. And yeah, I may be uncomfortable on the outside, but in here, there is joy unspeakable and full of glory. That's illustrated to us multiple times through the scripture. And uh, though it was in the Old Testament, I think that you see that exemplified beautifully in the life of Joseph. Uh, I think that uh, you can see it in others in the New Testament. Clearly, you see it in Timothy and Paul and uh, and many of those those early uh, church planters and founders and pastors uh, that they sat in a prison cell and they and they sang the praises of the Lord Jesus Christ. They did not go out complaining, but yet they found they they thanked the Lord that they were found worthy to suffer if it meant the furtherance of the gospel. What a wonderful truth. See, we have to yield to what God gives us. If I resist everything that God puts in my life, I'm going to be a person most miserable. And I probably will not serve God for long. And life is, uh, is filled with wonderful things, but sometimes uh, we cannot enjoy the wonderful things if we do not properly respond to the difficult things. Fighting against God's will is a losing proposition. It will never lead me any place good. So how do I do that? How do I resist fighting against the will of God? How do I embrace the will of God? And I think uh, just uh, still by way of introduction this morning, this is a long introduction today. Not that that's really that unusual, uh, but uh, but uh, just uh, by way of introduction, how do I how do I respond correctly? How do I have a heart for God? How do I handle hard things in life and stride and and grow in my relationship with him so that I am accomplishing what God wants accomplished in my life. And I would say, first of all, this morning along this line, that I've got to trust the Father. What it all boils down to when it when you come right down to it about how I respond to things that come in my life is, do I God, do I trust you? Do I trust my Father? I, I go to the doctor and get the bad news, the disease. Do I trust him? Am I all been out of shape? Is my life already over, even though uh, it's not yet? Or uh, can I look up and say, God, I don't understand, nor do I have to, because I trust you. If I can trust you to create all of this, and I can trust you to give me life, and I can trust you to save my soul, and I can trust you to give me life eternal, then I can trust you with this too. Do I trust him? A couple of things about trust. First of all, I would say that trust is developed. Trust is developed. Trust is not something that just all of a sudden it, it comes upon us. I was talking recently with Brother Jason. We were talking about different people that we've been 
working with or dealing with, and uh, he's generally really good with statistics and kind of up on things of that nature. And uh, and he said, you know, the average person that you go it used to be uh, whenever I was when I was young, I could go out and I could knock on a bunch of doors, and 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 pretty much almost every week, somebody's door that I knocked on would would trust the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior. That doesn't happen very often anymore. That's really rare. And what Brother Jason was telling me the other day was that, you know, there's there's a, a study out, I forget where he said he read it from, uh, that it takes on average six to seven times of someone actively sharing the truth of the gospel before that person's willing to and has learned enough to see and to trust it. It takes the cultivation of relationship, which is interesting because salvation is absolutely about relationship. And so the, to, to trust the Father, I have to realize that I trust that trust with God is, is going to be developed over time. The more that I know Him, the more that I experience Him, the more I'm going to trust Him. And that's the way that it is in our homes. That's why the home is such a beautiful picture. The home that God designed is such a beautiful picture uh, of, uh, of our relationship with God because a father who, true, who correctly leads his family and loves his children and, and, and cares for them from infancy, from infancy uh, and teaches them and, and, and learns, you know, disciplines them. Blah, I'll get it out in a minute. Disciplines them and develops them over the course of their life. That father has their trust. It didn't happen at the moment of birth and they didn't understand it as it was being developed. But because of relationship, it was cultivated in their life. And that's the way that our growth and development in God happens. It happens through the relationship of salvation. It happens through experience, different experiences. When you are, are walking with God and you are learning Him and you are fellowshipping with Him, and then something comes up and God answers that prayer, or God opens that door, that's an experience that builds trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Secondly, I would say that not only is trust developed, but it, it trust is devoted when i trust someone and i'm it's and i'm a hard person to win trust it's not hard for me to kind of throw some things out there and see what somebody will do with it but for me to get to the point where i just don't worry about it anymore and and know that it's going to be handled it's that's a hard place for me to get to but how it happens is through relationship and through experience when someone has proven, yes, pastor, I'm trustworthy, when they, when they were given a task and they perform it and they come through, on the other hand, many times people will, uh, will you know, the, the big moment will arrive and they bail. And then we're scrambling, trying to plug in gaps. And, and when that happens, same person several times over, then you kind of learn after a while, you know, I better, I better look somewhere else because or I better have a backup plan, or I better, uh, because otherwise I'm going to, I'm going to, something that everybody's worked hard to accomplish is going to fall apart. Trust is devoted. Once it's earned, it's not easily broken. Once trust is earned, it's not that the first mistake causes it to be broken. Once the trust is earned, it's earned hard, but it's broken hard. It's cultivated over time. And I would say this, whom I, whom I trust, I grow connected to. See, the more that I trust God, the more connection I have with God. The more connected He is to me, the more in tune He is with my life. So I need to trust the Father. Then secondly, I would say I need to talk to the Father. 
Jesus is talking to the Father here, but he's not really talking to him to obtain an answer. He's not, and he does ask questions. He does ask God to do some things in his life, uh, and he asks God to care for his men. He asks God some things for believers, but the overwhelming tone of his prayer of chapter 17 and what Jesus is laying out here now uh, as he is uh, as he is now being taken into custody is that he is going to God for an answer, or not for an answer, but for fellowship. He wants fellowship. He needs the strength and the closeness of the relationship to carry him through the difficulty. There's sometimes whenever you're in a situation where things are really hard and you, you don't want to go through those final moments alone, even if you don't really need the person that you want there uh, to, to do a lot, you just want the security of knowing they're there because you're close and you trust them and they that you know that they've got your best interest at heart, they've got your back, uh, they've been in this uh, with you. Uh, so Jesus here, I believe, is looking for fellowship. Not only that, he's not looking for deliverance. That's clear, especially in the uh, in the accounts in the other gospel, uh, other gospels. He's not looking for deliverance. He's looking for strength. Lord, help me to see this through. Lord, help me to accomplish what we've set forth, what must be done. He's looking for deliverance. His will must become my will, is the message here. The will of God must be the will become the will of the person who is connected with God. Thirdly, I would say that he then testifies of the Father. We must testify of the Father. If I'm walking with him, if I'm loving him, if I'm drinking from his cup, I'm going to do that. I'm going to be able to do that when I trust him, when I'm talking with him. And then that will lead to my testifying of him, a testimony uh, of his goodness in my life. But pastor, you're going through, uh, maybe you're going through a hard time. Well, that doesn't mean that God hasn't been good to me. Doesn't mean that God's not in the midst of it seeing me through. Doesn't mean that God's in the midst of it not giving me strength, that he's not giving me guidance and leadership. Then I can testify of his faithfulness. God was with me every step of the way. Yes, he led me through the valley of the shadow of death, but I did not need to fear any evil because God was with me. And all the way back to Psalm 23 and all the way through what God gives us throughout the Scripture and the testimony thereof is not a promise of easiness, but a promise of God's fellowship and presence in our life. We can testify of His faithfulness, and when I can testify of His faithfulness, I can testify of His mercy. Listen, the Father's cup may not always be sweet, but in light of eternity, it is always necessary. What He ordained for Jesus seems cruel to us, but in reality... It was necessary. And that brings us to the really the body of the message this morning. The Father's Cup doesn't often fit into the package of modern-day Christianity. But God's not in the business of adapting to us. He wants us brought into His image. We work, often, oftentimes you see people working really hard to, to make and create, recreate God in man's image. What do, we try to create, what do I want God to be in my life? And then that becomes our image of God. But it doesn't work that way. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He has not changed and he will not change. And what God is doing is conforming us and molding us into his image. Three thoughts this morning will be done, and I'll give these quickly. First, the Father's cup is a cup of sanctification. 
the Father's cup as a cup of sanctification. What Jesus is experiencing here as He goes through the garden is He has prayed and now He's <coughs> led His men. He knows that Judas is coming. Uh, Peter jumps in there real quick, draws a sword, cuts off Malchus's ear. It's interesting that only John gives us his name. Uh, but uh, but Jesus heals and then uh, it tells him to put it away. I have to drink the cup that my Father's given me. And what we're really dealing with here is what is this cup? What is uh, it about the cup of suffering that God uh, is requiring of the Lord Jesus Christ? And we see that, first of all, the Father's cup is a cup of sanctification. Hold your place there. Turn with me to James chapter number 1. In James chapter number 1, in the first four verses, the Bible says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad, greeting James, by the way, is the Lord's brother who initially rejected him now as a pastor of Jerusalem. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into divers' temptations. It's an interesting statement. Count it joy when I fall into trouble, when I have trials. Uh, knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience, but let or allow patience have her perfect work, that ye may be perfect and entire wanting nothing or lacking nothing. Then he says something very interesting. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God, which giveth to all men liberally or greatly and upbraideth or withholdeth not. What's he saying? He said, listen, count it a joy when you fall into temptation because that means your trial because God has chosen you. God has a greater purpose for you in this moment. Uh, and God wants to do something specific with you. Get, just let, let, let patience have its work. Let things run their course. Walk with God. Find joy in Jesus in the midst of it. Uh, let that patience have its perfect work that you might lack nothing. It doesn't talk about material things. It's that I lack not those spiritual tools that are necessary to accomplish with my life what God is trying to accomplish. And then verse number five is incredible because it says, if you can't understand that, if you lack the wisdom to understand that, which the disciples in the garden clearly lacked the wisdom to understand exactly what they were experiencing. If any of you lack wisdom, then ask of God. Ask God to show you enough to get you through, uh, to, to give you that. He wants to give you that grace, that wisdom. It's not really a reference to if, you, if I just want to be a wise man uh, to pray and ask God for wisdom. No, it's God, give me the wisdom to understand this trial that you have set me in, that I might that it might complete me and it might develop me and it might grow me and that it might be used for your glory. I want to allow and to be patient that the trial works in me to accomplish your perfect will. God, help me understand. And if I can't, may my trust and my leaning upon you be so strong that it guides me. What we're talking about here is a faith that's on trial. Listen, a faith... First of all, that is never tried is a faith that's untested, unproven, and of no value. When, when we uh, go through all kinds of things, our military goes through all kinds of training exercises, but until they go to combat, no one really knows for sure how things are going to work. And at every stage, at every war, there have been things that have been done creatively 
that have never been tried, and you'll hear statements, they've never been tried in combat before. It is a new concept. It is a new idea. Uh, you, you saw that in Vietnam with the helicopters coming into use and bringing people in and out. You see it uh, in different things of the war on terror. You've seen it in World War II with a lot of things with special forces and paratroop forces and things of those natures. They really, no one really knew whether it would be a failure or whether it would be effective until it was put to the test. Hey, listen, it's easy to have faith when I'm sitting in a church service and everybody around me loves me and is encouraging me and is helping me. But what about when I'm out there and my world starts falling apart? Jesus is in the garden. And there's not, it's not like there were just a couple of people that came out. There was a quaternion of soldiers, Roman soldiers that were sent that came. That's about 600 men to take him into custody. And Jesus, just with a spoken word, puts them back and then surrenders because it's the will of God. Faith on trial is what we see. We see the Lord Jesus and his men having this faith put to the test. And what they do in that moment and what Jesus has done in this prayer of chapter 17 is he has leaned on God. I will drink my father's cup. I will not avoid it. I will embrace it because the reward is so powerful and so valuable that I must reconcile my creation to myself. I must restore man to God. A faith that's on trial, a faith that leans on God, has as the effect and produces the effect. What James shares with us is let patience have her perfect work that you may be perfect and entire wanting or lacking nothing in our spiritual development and going through is that our trial, our faith on trial matures us in the Lord so that we can then teach others also. It's one of those things where uh, it's difficult for me to teach someone else if I have never been through a trial. My trial doesn't necessarily have to look the same as someone else's. My victory over a sin area in my life may not have to be the same sin as someone else's experienced. But until my faith has been tested, it is difficult for me to be able to stand up and really truly inspire or encourage or to lift someone else that's going through a hard time. Why would God want us tested in such a way, Pastor? Because He wants you to speak His truth to others. And He wants it to resonate with them as genuine and real. He wants you to use your relationship and to build it so that you can exemplify what a relationship with Him is like to bring people to salvation and to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. He wants to accomplish that in our life. So I would say this morning that, first of all, that the Father's cup is a cup of sanctification. The word sanctification just simply means to set apart to, to, for a task. Jesus was set apart in this moment for a task. Jesus in the garden is being separated from a man, these men. He is being sanctified in that moment to fulfill the cup that God has given him to drink. He has been pulled out. He is now alone, save God. The plan is in motion. Listen, I need to have my faith at times must be tested in order for it to be strengthened. I must lean on God and learn that I can trust Him. I must allow the Lord to mature me spiritually so that I am not blown away easily when accusations come or trials come or the gossipers get going or the backbiting starts or uh, division arises. 
God wants His church to come together and to be united as one for the furtherance of the gospel, to be a place where we edify one another, where we encourage one another, where we're growing together in the grace of the Lord. And if I am not a person who has allowed my faith to be matured, then I'll respond wrongly in those situations and I will become divisive. Faith must be tested. Secondly, this morning, consider that the Father's cup is a cup of sacrifice. A cup of sacrifice. I don't think that we can really argue this morning that Jesus is not being plucked from his men and set on to stand trial alone, set apart by God for the salvation of man. He's sanctified here. Secondly, it's the Father's cup is a cup of sacrifice. There is no question that what Jesus is about to do is the greatest sacrifice that the earth will ever see. He is sacrificing. His sacrifice is real. His sacrifice is pure. His sacrifice is going to be what brings mankind to salvation. His sacrifice, first of all, is one of the furtherance of the cause. He's not sacrificing randomly for no reason. He's not sacrificing because, uh, because, he, uh, because he doesn't have anything better to do. He's sacrificing because all of humanity is on a direct course to hell for all of eternity, and the only one that can make a difference is him. He's the only one qualified to fulfill and to satisfy the wrath and the justice of God. He's the only one qualified uh, to, to display the love of God. He's the only one that has the ability and has the position that allows him to intercede on our behalf. And he says, listen, I will drink from my father's cup, though it is a cup of sacrifice, because I'm willing to lay down my life for the furtherance of the gospel. I read a story this week about a first sergeant of the Marine Corps, the Battle of Fallujah, and it was 2009, I think, maybe six or seven. And, uh, and it showed a picture of, uh, of men carrying him out of the building. Uh, and as he came out of the building, he still had his service pistol in one hand and his K-bar, which is a knife in the other hand, so that he could fight his way out. But he had a Marine on either side carrying him out. When he entered the building with his men, he, he received seven 7.62 enemy rounds into his body. He was between his men and, and grenades and received multiple uh, entry in, uh, wounds from shrapnel and lost over 60 lost an estimated 60% of his blood. Yet while they carried him out, he was in fighting mode. He survived, miraculously enough. He did not receive the Medal of Honor, but he did receive many awards and, and medals of valor for his action. He, he was prepared to sacrifice for a cause that was greater than self. You know what's lost a lot of times in Christianity today is that we want our Christian life to just be something that makes life easy for us and we have ceased to be willing to make a sacrifice for a greater cause. There is no greater cause than the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. There is no greater cause than taking the truth of the saving grace of God to a lost man who is dying and on his way to hell. There is nothing greater that we can sacrifice our time, our energy, our money, our lives for than to do the work that God has given us to do. Drinking from the Father's cup is a cup of sacrifice. And I will not sacrifice if I do not believe in the cause. And I, it's easy to sit back and say, yeah, 
I believe in the cause, but are we willing to sign on the dotted line and go to war? There are a lot of people that would step up in our country today that would say, yes, I believe in the cause of, uh, of freedom and what our country is fighting for, but we're not, we're not down at the recruiting station signing the contract. Now, I'm not trying to compel you to go sign a contract this morning with the armed forces. I am trying to compel you this morning to sign a contract with the Lord Jesus Christ. Because ultimately what happens worldwide, though we should do our duty when it arises and when we're a nation needs us, uh, ultimately the greater need is the salvation of the lost around us. We must give our hearts to Christ. We must give our bodies a living sacrifice to Christ. We must go with him into the garden and say, Father, I will drink from your cup. Set me apart to your service. I'm willing to sacrifice because I believe in the cause. Do you believe in the cause this morning? Do you believe it enough to share your faith? Do you believe it enough to change when the Holy Spirit convicts your heart? Do you believe it enough uh, to sacrifice uh, things in your life that give you more time, more ability to grow in the grace of God and to be more effective in the cause that, that God has called us to be a part of? The sacrifice of one for the furtherance of the cause is beautifully on display as Jesus is taken into custody in the garden. The sacrifice of the temporal for the eternal. If I'm not careful, things that will soon pass away will dominate my life so greatly that I have no time, no energy, no capacity left to do anything of value for the cause of Christ. <coughs> I think that we ought to be a people that work hard. I think that we ought to be a people that that uh, that are well known and have great testimonies at our places of employment. We certainly have a responsibility to care for the needs of our family. Uh, and I'm not discounting that, but I am saying be cautious that you don't slip into a mode of, of acquiring things so greatly that you've got nothing left in time or in energy or in desire to serve God. Because that is eternal. What matters most are not the things that are going to be left to those that are behind or that can be destroyed in a fire or a hurricane or, or that will someday just crumble on their own. What matters is when I get to heaven, who have I influenced and brought with me there? What impact has my life made? The Father's cup is a cup of sanctification. It's a cup of sacrifice. And lastly, it's a cup of service. It's a cup of service. John chapter 13, if you turn back just a few pages, and we're not going to read all of this passage for sake of time this morning. But in these 17, first 17 verses uh, of John chapter number 13, Jesus is in the upper chamber with his disciples. And it is a time when he comes and he washes their feet. He displays to them servant leadership. He says, yes, I am God. I am going to the cross to die for your sins. But right now in this moment, I'm here to serve you. And he begins to wash. The, he begins to wash their feet, and Peter rebuffs that in verse uh, in verse seven and uh, in verse eight, and then in verse eight at the end, Peter says, uh, "Thou shalt never wash my feet." In other words, he's saying, "Lord, I'm not going to allow you to demean yourself by washing my feet." Jesus' response is interesting because he says, "If I wash thee not, then thou hast no part with me. If you will not allow me to minister to your need." then you will not have part with me. Even here, what Jesus wants to do this morning is to minister to your need. And what God wants us as a church to do is minister to the needs of those who need to come to Christ, who are struggling in the Christian life.
Peter then says unto him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. I'm all yours. He just says, no, it's not necessary right now. See, sometimes we fear, okay, if I surrender, then that means that God's going to call me to the, to the mission field. He's going to send me to the middle of nowhere. Uh, it's, going to, it's going to cause me to uh, completely upset my life. Jesus didn't say when Peter said, okay, Lord, you, my, my hands and my head also. No, he said, your feet are sufficient. I want your heart. I want you to surrender. I want you to take this cup. The Father's cup is a cup of service. We serve Christ by serving others. You see, devotional life, time in prayer, time reading the Lord's Word, time reading things that help grow us and develop us spiritually, that's necessary time. That's fellowship with God. That's worship uh, with the Father. But true service is serving others. True service is reaching out to others. Serve Christ by serving others. I cannot fulfill the cup that God has given me to drink if I never serve another. How do I do that, Pastor? There are all kinds of ways to do that. It may be as simple as speaking an encouraging word. It may be as simple as standing in the parking lot and greeting people as they come in, helping someone find a seat, uh, helping someone to uh, make a repair that they can't make and doing all kinds of, there's, there's all taking them the gospel. There's all kinds of ways to serve the Lord. There's no shortage. Serve Christ by serving others. Secondly, serve with expectation without with no expectation of reward. In other words, I am going to serve this person with no expectation of them turning around and reciprocating and doing something for me. I'm doing this for the Lord. I'm doing this because God led me. The reward that I want for service is people's lives coming to Christ. And allow people allowing the Lord to move them, to stir them, to change their life, allowing the Holy Spirit to lead them, to guide them. Serve Christ by serving others. Serve with no expectation of reward. Serve genuinely, not to get, not to manipulate, not to drive or to force. Serve and lead gently as God puts people in our path. Serve with no ex expectation of reward. And then lastly, serve for God's glory, not self-glory. Serve for the glory of God. <clears throat> you know, sometimes people will do things, and if there's not a pat on the back from the pulpit or there's not somebody out, and those things are not wrong. But, you know, we ought to do those things. But but if, if my motive is the recognition of man, then my motive is impure. What I do for the Lord, I do for the Lord. And if man recognizes it and says, thank you, or that was a blessing, or attaboy, or here's a, an award, every year in August when we uh, come down to our uh, anniversary time, we try to recognize a faithful servant within the church for that year. That's a good thing. But whether you get that award or not, whether you receive that award or not, you should be just as happy to just continue on serving the Lord, even if no one seems to notice, because what you do, you do not for the glory of self and the pride and the praise of man, but to be a blessing and to honor God. That's what Jesus does here. He's getting, he's taken into custody. He's headed to trial. And just a matter of hours, he will be flogged and beaten. He will begin to bleed. And just a matter of 
hours he'll be on a cross. Seems so cruel. The Father's cup seems so brutal. And it was. But what it produced was life eternal. What it produced was the power for lives to be changed. What it produced was a reconciliation of all that Satan had deceived and destroyed back to God. Will I this morning say, Lord, I'm willing to drink from your cup? It's not a plea for trouble. It's not a plea for trial. It's not a plea for uh, a crucified life. It is a acknowledges an acknowledgement of, Lord, you want from me to make and to offer my body a living sacrifice to please you, to serve you, to live for you. It's an acknowledgement that God has a will for my life. It's an acknowledgement that God has a plan and a purpose for me. And it is a surrender to that plan, to that purpose. God, you have a will for me. I will commit myself to discover what it is, to make whatever preparations are necessary to carry it out, and to engage in the fulfillment of your will for my life. Drink this morning with Jesus from your Father's cup. Let's pray. Fathers, we close this morning. Lord, I pray that you would meet with us now. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would strengthen our faith. Lord, I pray if there are some here that have never tr trusted you as Savior, that they will put their faith and trust in you today. Lord, Holy Spirit, I pray that you would bring great conviction and convincing to our hearts this morning. Lord, perhaps others are in a place where we've just kind of been drifting aimlessly along and not really fully committed to uh, to following and serving the, you and drinking from the cup that you've given. Or maybe we've gotten distracted by things that are temporal and we've neglected things eternal. Or may our lives be balanced and focused on that which is truly important. Or may you show us the way. And may you give us the grace to trust you.